0: Let's just keep that shout going for just a little bit longer. It's difficult to know what to do after that, isn't it? Why don't we just thank the band? You guys have been amazing, absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for serving us. (laughs) Feel free to take your seats. Why don't you put your hand on the people sitting next to you and pray, Lord, zap them. (laughs) holy spirit we do pray that you would meet with us in such an incredible deep way this evening you've already done so much in this room today and in some ways our hearts and minds are thinking can we take any more (laughs) i pray in this instant you would refresh Our hearts, our minds, our bodies, so that our capacity for your goodness would be stretched. I pray stretch our hearts and minds that we would be able to take in more revelation of your goodness, of your incredible kindness to us, and we would understand who you have made us to be. Holy Spirit, this meeting is yours. Hmm. We are yours. We are yours. <laughs> and so we lay our agenda down at your feet. And we say, Jesus, come and have your way. <laughs> I pray you would be shooting arrows of truth into our hearts. Ha. <sighs> That would bury so much deeper than the lies that the enemy has told us. So freedom would come all across this room. <laughs> we love your presence. We love your presence. We honor you, Holy Spirit, in this place we don't want to go anywhere or do anything without your presence and we're so grateful that we don't have to for you live in us you have made your home in us and you flow streams of living water from us i pray the river would rise in this place tonight that banks would be broken tonight. Streams would bubble up and flow freely. I call out rivers of living water, and I say flow, flow, flow and overflow, to bring life and healing wherever you go isn't he kind isn't his presence so sweet I want to encourage you again to put your leaders hats off put your children's hats on I want you to encourage you just to be open hearted This evening is about entering the Master's joy. And so feel free to get happy. It's nice preaching to a crowd who are happy. What I'd like to do this evening is um, look a little bit at what it looks like to be a son. Um, The beautiful thing is that Jesus promised us in John 14 that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. And so the promise for every believer is that you're not an orphan, but the Father has adopted you into his family and you are now sons and daughters in his house. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just look at what it, what it looks like to be a son, what it looks like to be a daughter, and just explore a few things around that. We're going to base ourselves in Luke 15 and also in Galatians 4, so feel free to flick to those places. I'll be reading one of the parables that we read earlier, and then we'll read just a couple of verses from Galatians 4 together, and then get stuck in. I'm going to go from Luke 15:11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. "'His father came out and entreated him, "'but he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I've served you. "'I never disobeyed your command, "'yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might celebrate with my friends. "'But when the son of yours came, "'who has devoured your property with prostitutes, "'you killed the fattened calf for him.' "'And he said to him, "'Son, you are always with me. "'All that is mine is yours. "'It was fitting to celebrate and be glad.' For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Hmm. Isn't the gospel amazing? What I love about what Jesus has done is that it would be enough for him to extend grace to us in forgiving our sins. But he goes beyond that, and he chooses not only to forgive our sins, but to set us free completely. And that in itself would be astonishing, but he goes even further than that and adopts us into the family of God. So now we who were enemies, we who were a long way off, we who were orphans have now become sons and daughters in the house of God. See, often we reduce the work of Jesus on the cross to an issue of morality. Often we think of what the gospel does as behavior modification. We reduce the gospel to a holy God making bad people good. And for many of you in this room, that may be your understanding of the gospel, that a holy God sent his son so that you who were bad could now become good. That is not the gospel at all. The gospel is not about a holy God making bad people good. The gospel is about the father God making orphans into sons and daughters. Adoption is the highest point of God's redemptive grace. And what I find fascinating about this parable is that it tells the story of two sons who understood nothing of sonship and in reality lived their lives more like they were orphans than as if they were sons. And we can read the parable and we kind of shake our heads and tut at the appropriate moments because their mistakes are so obvious to us. But if we're really honest with ourselves... There are so many moments in our lives where we make decisions out of a place of orphan heartedness rather than a place of sonship. So many of the thoughts of our minds, so many of the attitudes of our hearts reflect an attitude and a root of orphan heartedness more than they do the rest and the enjoyment of sonship. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Luke 15 and Galatians 4 and explore what it means to be sons, what it looks like not to be an orphan, but to be a son, and really to call us back to who God has already said we are. I want to say this, the spirit is the spirit of adoption. It is by his revelation that we cry out, Abba, Father. And so I would do my job really badly tonight if you walk away with a five-point sermon on how to be a better son. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to encourage us to do is to come to the person of the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, breathe on me afresh. Take out any remains of orphan-hearted thinking in me, for you have pronounced me a son and daughter in the house of the living God. Reveal to me my sonship so that I can live as a son, free and full of joy. And so if there's one thing you take away tonight, that's what I want you to take away. That the Holy Spirit is the one who can breathe on you and lead you in the way of sonship. This is not a how-to sermon. This is a sermon of showing us things that we can ask the Holy Spirit to breathe on. Because only he is capable to lead us into sonship. What we're going to look at, we're, we're going to look at the power of God's adopting of us in relation to him as our father, in relation to our understanding of the law, in relation to honor, in relation to our inheritance, and in relation to the party. So I hope you'll follow with me as we go. I know it's been a long day, but I think God's got some more for us. So let's look at adoption and our relationship with God. The two sons are really funny when it comes to their father. You look at the younger son, and for him, the father is a means to an end. Right at the beginning of the story, interestingly, the younger son essentially voluntarily orphans himself. In Jewish culture, if you said to your father, can I have my inheritance early, what you were essentially saying to him was, I wish you were dead. In fact, you are now dead to me. I would prefer the money than you. And that's exactly what the younger son does. His father to him is a means to inheritance. His father to him is a means to money. And he voluntarily orphans himself so that he can get his hands on the money. Interestingly, when the younger son returns home, we make it such a spiritual sign of repentance. Look, he was hungry and he knew that his father had food. He didn't go back because he was motivated by love for his father. He didn't go back because he suddenly realized the error of his ways and wanted to reunite with his father. He thought to himself, I am starving. I need food. What is the means to that end? My father. So again, even in his grand return, the father is still for him a means to an end. And so often we can approach God like that, our means to an end, our heavenly bank manager. We may not realize we're doing it, but it will be reflected in whether we go up and down depending on the circumstances. I'm happy today because God makes me feel so loved, and he provides for all my needs. I'm happy today because with God, I can get healing. I'm so happy today because with God, I can belong to a wonderful community. I love Jesus because with him, I get to operate in great power and see wonderful miracles. You'll know if you have a God plus something mentality because if you take the plus something away, God no longer looks so good to you. What do we feel like when we're not being well provided for? What do we feel like when we're not getting healed? What do we feel like where a once very powerful ministry suddenly dries up and we're not seeing any miracles anymore? Is God still wonderful in those moments? This isn't meant to make us feel heavy and condemned. Because the beauty of adoption is that adoption frees us to feel contentment in all circumstances. Because when we come to the point that the Father becomes our prize, not our means to an end, whether we have everything or nothing at all, we will know utter joy and contentment because the Father is always with us, so we lose nothing ever. It's the contentment that the Apostle Paul knew. Whether he was rich or poor, whether he was in chains or free, no matter what was happening to him, he was overflowing with joy, overflowing with rejoicing. The reason was he had understood this, that the father is the prize and the father will never leave him. The younger son was an orphan in his heart. He saw the father as his means to the end, not as the prize himself the older son is also interesting. He has a different mentality. His is an earning mentality. He sees the father as a master who he must serve and with whom he can earn favor. So he's busy trying to rack up all his good works and make sure they're really good and make sure that he does every single thing the father has asked of him because he doesn't want to disobey. All the while in his mind, he's trying to earn favor. The tragedy, of course, is that he already had all the favor the father had to give he saw the father as a master and he's busy earning favor and what happens if you have an earning mentality is that it leads to a sense of entitlement when you feel you've been good enough and that's exactly what the older son had When he thought he'd been good enough, he has a rant at the father because the father never gave him a party, but he's thrown his younger brother a party, and that's not fair because I've been really good. See, the older son didn't see the father as the prize either. For him, the father was a master with whom he wanted to earn favor, and of course the tragedy is he already had it. I find it fascinating, the interaction between Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes to Eve and basically starts questioning the goodness of God and says to Eve, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will become like God. What's strange about that is that she already was like God. She was created in his image. And yet the serpent comes along, Hmm. attaches what she already had to an action, eat of the fruit of this tree, and then you will become like God, which incidentally is the root of all religion, attaching something the Father has already freely given to us to a performance. And she falls for it. She trades what she already has, for a lie, and falls into religion. And that's exactly what the older son was busy doing. Unaware that he already had all the favor he could possibly want, he's busy with performance, trying to achieve it all by himself instead. And the father's response to him is so overwhelming because the father knows he's the prize. So when the older son is angry and has had his moment of telling the father exactly what he thinks, the father says to him, son, you're always with me, for the father knows he's the prize. The beauty of adoption is that we don't have to see God as our means to an end anymore or as a cold, distant master who we're desperately trying to serve and earn some favor with. But Galatians tells us that adoption means that we get to cry out, Abba, Father. We get to enter into a relationship of utter closeness and intimacy with God The word Abba is an Aramaic word. And when Jesus used it for the first time, it was completely shocking to the crowd because no one in all of history would have referred to the Father with that phrase. The word Abba was a word, it's difficult to translate accurately, but it was a word basically like daddy, but it wasn't a word that only children used. It was a word that adults would use too, but it was a word of intimacy and closeness. And Jesus calls the father Abba, which is utterly shocking. But what is even more astonishing is that he then invites his disciples into that same relationship of closeness. The spirit of adoption comes and transforms our relationship with God so that we get to cry out, Abba, Father. And the beautiful thing is, That because it is the Spirit's work in our hearts, no matter what our earthly experience of fathers has been, we get to walk in closeness with God as our Father. It's got nothing to do with your past experience. The Holy Spirit can bring healing into your heart so that you get to walk with closeness. It is the portion of every son and daughter. Adoption totally transforms our relationship with God. He is now our Abba. Let's look at adoption and the relationship with the law. Galatians tells us that Jesus was born under the law so that he could redeem, he could buy back those who were held captive by the law so that they could receive adoption as sons and daughters. We were literally held in the grip of the law. And the beauty and the grace that God shows us in redemption and adoption means that we are no longer enslaved to the law, which is a system which is perfect, so we can never attain all of its perfection, so we always stand in accusation. But grace comes and frees us up from that so that we can now live in a place not... Carrying the burden of having to be right and do right all the time. Being able to live in a place where we lean on Jesus and his rightness, his righteousness. And we live in utter freedom. The older son was totally bound in the grip of the law. He was busy trying to do the right thing. He was busy showing legalism towards himself, constantly trying to achieve all that he thought his father required of him, constantly trying to tick every box. But the burden of the law does not stop at doing right. It also continues to having to be right, which is legalism towards other people. When you are held in the grip of the law, you would choose to be right over a relationship. When you're held in the grip of the law, forgiveness is so difficult for you because it is of optimum importance that you be right. And so you cannot let another go. It's why the older son was so angry, because under Jewish law, like I said this morning, rebellious sons would be stoned. And so the older son, who's held in the grip of the law, who knows the burden of doing right and being right, cannot rejoice when his younger brother comes back and his father receives him back safe and sound. Because this brother who's held in the grip of the law doesn't want to hear that his, brother, his father received his brother back safe and sound. He wants to hear that his father stoned his rebellious brother. He's held in the grip of the law and wants to be right over being united in relationship. He cannot extend forgiveness. Which is why when he talks to the father, he cannot even call his brother, brother anymore, but says to his father, when this son of yours came back. The beauty is that in Hebrews 2, we're told that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, but he stands in the midst of the assembly and calls us brothers. The difficulty of living in the law is that the law is a system based entirely on justice. You get what you deserve. There is no mercy in the law. The problem is that it requires perfection, and seeing as none of us can reach that standard, we're always falling short of the law, and so what we deserve is always punishment and death. It's a system where we always stand accused. And the devil loves the realm of the law because his name is accuser. And so he is totally in his element in the realm of the law. If you live in the realm of the law, you will know because you stand open to accusation day and night. And some of you in this room will be familiar with that feeling. You'll be familiar with thoughts in your head constantly against you, telling you you're rubbish, telling you you're nothing, telling you constantly that you're a failure. If you struggle with accusing thoughts constantly, I want to ask you, are you living in the realm of the law? Because the beauty and the power of adoption is this, that the father sent his son born under the law so that he could pick us up from the realm of the law and seat us in the realm of the, of grace, which is not a realm based on justice. It is a realm not, let me start again. It is a realm not based on what we deserve, but it is a realm based entirely on what the Father wants to give, which is mercy and grace ever flowing. When you live in the realm of grace and the devil comes to you and tells you you're a loser and you're nothing and you're worthless, you can just smile sweetly, And say, I'm sorry, I think you're talking to the wrong person. See, I was with Jesus dying on the cross, says the Bible. And the Bible tells me that Jesus took every accusation on himself on that cross. And so if you're trying to come and accuse me, I'm sorry, because I think that accusation got dealt with on the cross. I now live in the realm of grace. Your accusation cannot stick the way to overcome the devil's accusations is always to make sure we're living in the realm of grace. For the cross is the answer for every accusation. The problem, of course, with unforgiveness is that you cannot demand that someone else gets what they deserve without being sucked back in yourself to the realm of the law. It is impossible to stand in the realm of grace but demand another live in the realm of the law. And that's why Jesus tells us to forgive. It's not because he wants to belittle our pain. It's not because he wants to say, oh, well, it wasn't that bad anyway, just let it go. No, he tells us to forgive because he knows that to live in the realm of grace is the only place where you will see fulfillment and life and joy and you cannot live in the realm of grace and hold unforgiveness. The beauty of the power of adoption is that Jesus picks you up from the realm of the law if you let him and leaves you beautifully, wonderfully, magnificently in the realm of grace. Sonship means you no longer stand open to accusation, but you live in the wonderful free realm of grace. A few more things on this. I wonder who we sound more like. I wonder if we sound more like the gracious father who extends forgiveness to his very broken son. Or if we sound more like the accusing older brother or the accusing devil. I wonder if as churches, we sound more like the gracious father or the accusing older brother. uh, Julian made reference to this earlier saying so often as churches we, we accuse and we judge and we're known for what we don't believe rather than what we do believe. So often we have older brothers filtering who comes into our buildings to make sure they're good enough as if any of us were ever good enough to come into the presence of God. So often we're known for our anti-abortion placards and our anti-gay placards as if that reflects anything of the Father's heart. For the Father says, come, come, just as you are, come. You who are broken, come. You whose repentance is entirely half-hearted and dependent on the food that I can give rather than on me, come. The door is wide open. Let us be people who say to the world, come. There is room enough for every single one in the father's embrace. The gospel is not about behavior modification. It's about seeing a lost and orphan-hearted world reunited with their papa. And we get to be the means of that grace if we'll only accept it. I love some verses in Ephesians 4. It talks about speaking the truth in love to one another. Remember those verses? Christians often use those verses before they're about to hit someone over their head with some criticism. If someone says to you, I need to speak the truth in love to you, you're like, oh man, this is not going to be fun. It's because we've understood the heart of the accusing older brother much more than we have the gracious father. And so we read scripture often through a lens of accusation and judgment rather than a lens of grace. If you read Ephesians 4 clearly, it's got absolutely nothing with criticizing one another. See, speaking the truth in love to one another is all about spiritual maturity in Christ-likeness. The truth is not an idea, he's a person. And he happens to live inside of you and me. So when I speak the truth in love to you, what I'm doing is calling out the Christ-likeness from you and pulling out the gold and the destiny from you. So what should happen is as Christians, when we say to one another, I need to speak the truth in love to you, what should happen is we should declare greatness and Christ-likeness over one another. It is not an excuse for criticism. And it's not a verse just reserved for the Christians. Because outside our church's doors, there's a world of people who were created in the image of God. And yes, they may be broken image bearers, but they're image bearers nonetheless. So we get the wonderful privilege of walking around, calling out Christ-likeness from the world all around us, pulling gold and destiny from those around us, whether they know Jesus or not, trusting that as we pull the gold from them and as we show them who they were created to be, they'll fall in love with the Jesus who made them that way. Orphans are held in the realm of the law. Sons live in the realm of grace. It's a wonderful realm to live in. Let's look at adoption and honor. Paul uses the word adoption that we read in in the letter to the Galatians in three of his letters. He uses it in his letter to the Romans. He uses it in his letter here to the Galatians, and he uses it in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He uses it in these three contexts because all three were under Roman jurisdiction, and when he used the word adoption, he wanted them to understand that word through a Roman lens. In Roman times, adoption meant three things. First of all, it was entirely irreversible. Once you'd gone through the full process of adoption, there was no going back. If you didn't like the child, if you didn't fit in, it didn't matter. There was no going back. Once the process was finished, that was it. That child belonged to that family, full stop. The second thing about adoption that Romans would have understood is that it was a common means by which powerful people would bestow or pass on their power to their adopted sons or daughters. As Paul was writing this letter around that same time, the Emperor Claudius was passing on his power to his well known adopted son, Emperor Nero. And in fact, in the last six emperors, four of them had chosen to bestow their power to adopted sons. It was a well-known means of passing power from one man to another. And lastly, adoption was all about honor. In ancient times, who you belonged to was much more important than who you are. And so what happened in adoption was you would take someone who had no family honor because they belonged to no one. And you would place them into a place immediately, transferring them into a place of honor because suddenly they had a name to speak of. In ancient times, you could achieve honor by doing something incredibly heroic, but because what you did would never, ever supersede whose you were, you could never achieve honor that would outlast or would somehow supersede the honor you would get from your family. And so, what is amazing about how God works out adoption for us is that, first of all, it's irreversible. There's never a moment where the father's going to think, Oh no, you've totally done it now. You've totally disappointed me. I did not see that coming. You're out. Never. His adoption of us is irreversible. The second thing is that his beautiful grace in adopting us means that by that he bestows his power onto us. So the power with which Jesus lived, the same Holy Spirit that lived in him and raised him from the dead now lives in us so that we have exactly the same power that Jesus did. And finally, God ascribes all the honor due his name unto us in the process of adoption so that none of us have to achieve Honor. None of us have to perform so that we can gain some significance. None of us have to prove our worth by how well we can teach or preach or prophesy or evangelize the nations or lead worship. None of us have to prove our worth by our salary or our career or how brilliant we are at raising our children because the Father has already ascribed all his honor unto us and any honor we could Ever achieve is always overshadowed by the honor we already have in Him. It's what should make the church the most wonderfully encouraging place to be because there is no competition in this house, there is no competition in this community. We all understand ascribed honor. We all understand that there is infinite amount of honor on us. So none of us is competing with another. None of us is comparing our good works to another. But we're free to cheer one another on. We're free to say, yeah, go for it. Brilliant. I'm so glad you've outrun me in that. Because none of us are trying to achieve significance anyway. The religious spirit, the orphan heartedness does not understand ascribed honor. And so it's desperately trying to achieve it. It's actually why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, because there were people who'd come into the church who were teaching that the Christians, alongside grace, had to now do some things in order to remain Christians primarily in the area of circumcision. Circumcision. And Galatians 6 explains to us why they were teaching these things. It says because they wanted to boast in the flesh. See, these teachers who'd come into the church did not understand ascribed honor and so were desperately trying to achieve it in what they could do in the flesh. Orphan-heartedness leads to performance. Performance because we're desperately trying to achieve something that in sonship the father has already given us. I love the story with the lost son because what the father does is just so shocking. We, we read it with our cultural lens and we kind of think, okay, he, he ran, he got his son. That's nice. If you read it through a Jewish cultural lens, it's actually one of the most undignified things the father could have done. In Jewish culture, grown men were not to run and they were not to show their legs. If you're wearing a long robe, how else do you run but lift your robe to run? And so the father did two things that would be Utterly disgusting to those who were looking on as he thr- as he ran through the streets of the village. He lifted up his robes as he saw his son a long way off. Incidentally, we don't think he lived at the top of a hill so he could see his son in the distance. He was probably a significant member of a village and would live within a community. So that means he must have been daily straining his eyes constantly, looking through the streets of the village to make. sure sure if his son is coming home, he would spot him first. And then he sees his son in the distance and he doesn't care what the villagers are going to think, but he lifts up his robes and he starts running and running and running. And the whole time he's thinking, I must get to my son before my son gets to the village. If he gets to the village before I get to him, he will be stoned. I must get to my son and restore his honor, even if it means dishonoring myself. And so the father takes the shame of the son as the villagers would have looked on in utter disgust as the father totally humiliated himself by running through the streets of the village. He didn't care. In his mind, foremost was to restore honor to his son, not to maintain his own. And so our father sends his son Jesus who willingly sacrifices himself, utterly humiliated on a cross, naked, scorned, because all the while the Father is thinking, I must restore humanity to myself, even if it means my own shame and humiliation. Isn't what the Father has done amazing? To irreversibly adopt us, to bestow his power onto us and to give us the honor due his name for all eternity. One last thing about adoption and honor honor is assumed within family. Romans 8 talks about adoption, Romans 12 says, within the family of God, outdo one another in honor. As you understand what it looks like to be a family, central place is outdoing one another in honor. Because we understand that whatever gets honored in the family reflects back on the family. So I get to cheer you on because your victory is mine and my victory is yours. We all get to share. Adoption and our inheritance. Orphans don't get inheritance. The younger son is grabbing at the inheritance as if it's about to disappear. The older son, interestingly, is, also has an unhealthy relationship with his inheritance. He's trying to hoard it. See, if the father had two sons, divided his inheritance equally between them at the beginning of the story, the younger son uses up his entire inheritance. When the younger son returns, And the robe is put on his shoulders, the ring on his finger. The fattened calf is killed. Whose inheritance is now being spent? And so the older son is angry. Because he knows that everything that is now placed on the younger son, all of it is coming out of his share of the inheritance. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. See, Jesus is our ultimate older brother. And the Bible tells us that Jesus welcomes us in to share in his inheritance. His arms are open. He's not grabbing at his inheritance. He's not hoarding his inheritance. He's saying, come, 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 and share in all that is mine. Share it is now yours. Jesus freely gives what the older brother could not find in his heart to give, Jesus shares his inheritance. I love the story of um, Abraham and Lot. Abraham, the patriarch in the in the Old Testament, Abraham and his nephew um, Lot. They're traveling around with their families and all of their livestock, and eventually Lot says, "Look, the ground is just not good enough to hold both of us. Let's go our separate ways." Abraham was the older one. He was the one holding all of the promises. It would have been his right to pick the best of the land for him to take. And yet Abraham says to Lot, You look to the north, to the south, to the east and west. Whatever looks best to you, you pick first. And so Lot looks around and picks the best of the land for himself. What made Abraham do that? What made him so free with his inheritance well, he was secure in the promises of God. He knew it was all his anyway. And so he didn't need to grab at it. He didn't need to hoard it. There was such security that there was more than enough. So he was open-handed with Lot I love the way David is with his mighty men. David's pinnacle of his career, even when he was king, the thing he was most famous for, the one battle that people even today remember him for, is for killing a giant. He would be excused for wanting to keep that privilege to himself. He would be excused for not wanting to teach anyone else how to do it because that's what made him famous. But what we see as David trains up his mighty men is that in 2 Chronicles we read that the mighty men went on to kill even more giants than David did. See, David understood something about his inheritance, something about his legacy. He was so secure in what Jesus had given him, what's so secure and what God had bestowed on him in favor that he knew that his ceiling was always going to be another's platform. He was able to freely give it away. He was not busy trying to hoard his inheritance. He was not trying to grab at it. He was saying, come, let's share in this. Let me help you, push you on into destiny. Let me be the springboard for you so that you can do so much more than I've ever done in my lifetime. That's what it looks like to be part of the family of God. We're invited in to share the inheritance of Jesus. There is more than enough for everyone. Heaven is not disappearing. Heaven is not in recession. Heaven is not counting coins, making sure each person has just enough in the moment. Heaven is infinitely resourced and is saying, come Come, everybody in all the earth, come. There is more than enough for all of us. And if we truly understand our eternal position as sons, we will understand our eternal privilege as heirs because what happens when you have access to resources that it's not just for you to grow fat and happy, but it's a privilege for you to sustain other people with it. There's more than enough for us, and we can afford to give it away. That's true of our finances, because I tell you, your bank balance doesn't have the final word on your resource. Heaven does. That's true of our time, because your watch is not your master. There's all eternity in heaven. Let heaven resource your time. That's true of your legacy. You don't have to build an incredible legacy so that you'll be famous in the church for something or other. You can share that as a resource to those who come after you so that your sons and daughters run much, much further than you ever have. And the reality of our inheritance is that it's something we get to tap into now. It's not about waiting until we die so we get to go to a far-off heaven somewhere. It's about accessing the realm of heaven that is open and is even more real than the earth all around us because heavenly resources open for us today. Adoption changes everything about our inheritance. And finally, adoption and the party. Orphans see the party in two different ways. The younger son, who was orphan-hearted, thinks the party is anywhere else but home. So he wants to take his inheritance and he wants to run. He wants to have a good time, but his assumption is a good time is not found with his father. So off he goes. The older son, he's got a more complicated approach to things. It's religious behavior is what he has. So externally, he's not interested in a party. And in fact, when he hears the sound of the party, he has to ask his servant what it means, which tells you something about his experience of parties before. He's not interested in a party. He's interested in getting things right and obeying his father. But actually, when you scratch a little bit under the surface, he gets annoyed at his father because he's never thrown him a party, not to celebrate with the father, but to celebrate with his friends. See, the religious spirit always has this mask that pretends it's really holy and doesn't need the things that non-religious people are doing. They're unspeakable things, but actually inwardly, The religious spirit wants exactly what the non-religious are doing. The tragedy for both things is that they totally misunderstood the father because the father throws the best party. And so when the younger son returns, a party is thrown for him, a celebration that is totally, totally incredible in comparison to what he's experienced before. Sons get to celebrate. Sons understand that there's pleasures evermore at the right hand of their father. There's nowhere else that we need to look. If you're craving fun, laughter, excitement, if you're craving a party, I tell you Jesus throws the best parties. The parable of the lost son or the prodigal father, however you want to call it, It's written in two exact mirrored opposites. The first portion is the younger son, the second portion is the older son. In the Greek, it's written in two sets of eight stanzas. The first set of eight stanzas, the eighth stanza ends with the younger son entering his father's party, entering into his father's joy. The second set of eight stanzas is left incomplete. It's got the seven stanzas, but the last one is incomplete because as Jesus said it, he was opening it up to those who were religious all around him to choose the end of the story. Will the older son enter into the party or will he walk away broken? See, the father makes the same invitation to us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. He has come so that we see our Father. As Abba, not as master, not as means to an end. He has come so that we no longer need to live in the grip of the law, captivated by it, captured by it, but we can now live in the wonderful free realm of grace where we never stand open to accusation ever again. He has come so that God can bestow all of the honor on his name over us. He has come so that we get to share in Jesus' inheritance and access all of the resources of heaven and the spirit of adoption comes so that we can choose to enter our father's joy I wonder what we'll choose today see the father wants to bring fullness of joy Jesus said he'd come so that his joy would be in us and our joy would be complete (laughs) complete joy Sounds pretty good to me.